from the Brexit vote in Britain. A victory for real people. To the election of Donald Trump. A new vision will govern our land. People around the world are rebelling against the ruling elite. And increasingly turning to the political extremes. So what lies behind the recent rise in populism and authoritarianism? My guest tonight is an economist who blames the political establishment in her new book, Edge of Chaos, why democracy is failing to deliver economic growth and how to fix it. She believes democracy is in crisis and has some pretty controversial suggestions for how to save it. I'm Mehdi Hassan, and I've come to the Oxford Union to go head-to-head -head with economist and best-selling author Dambiza Moyo. I'll ask her why she seems to blame democracy for falling economic growth, and whether her plan to save democracy by giving some voters more power and influence than others could end up killing it instead. Tonight, I'll be joined by Anne Pettifor, author of The Production of Money and one of only a handful of economists who correctly predicted the financial crisis. Jamie White, Director of Research at the Institute of Economic Affairs, the IEA, and a former New Zealand politician and philosophy lecturer. And Jason Hickel, an anthropologist at the London School of Economics and author of The Divide, a brief guide to global inequality and its solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dambiza Moyo. Dambiza's first book, Dead Aid, caused waves when she argued that rather than helping Africa, foreign aid was actually making the continent poorer. She's a former Goldman Sachs banker and ex-consultant at the World Bank. Dambiza Moyo, welcome to Head to Head. Thank you. Um, one of the central premises of your book is that the popular discontent that we see across the West right now, for example, the Brexit vote, the election of Donald Trump, the rise of populist parties, uh, is driven by the failure of governments uh, to deliver economic growth. Yet many experts, pollsters, people who have studied this stuff would say Brexit wasn't driven by economics. Trump wasn't elected by the poor or the left behind. Uh, it's a complete myth. It had much more to do with culture and identity issues, which you don't really address in the book. Well, I you don't. I mean, obviously, my doctorate that I completed here at Oxford, um, you know, a, a while ago um, is in, in economics. And so I very much see these issues of challenge um, through that lens. Um, I'm not dismissing that there might be other, uh, you know, aspects. And I, I'll leave that to people who are focused on those areas to, to make the case for that. Um, I am concerned about the economics. Um, we do know that real wages have come down um, virtually every developed country over the past 30 years. Social mobility mm. has, uh, has declined. Income inequality has widened. Um, and so the, the, the threat of, uh, uh, of a lack of participation in the labor force, because people have essentially given up on, on work, um, all these aspects have created a schism. Things like Trump and Brexit, N not necessarily true. I get that that's your prism and that's your specialism. Yeah. doesn't make it correct. The and majority of Americans earning less than $50,000 a year voted for Hillary Clinton, not Donald Trump. Well, the I voters in the Rust Belt states who said the economy is the most important issue for the country went with Hillary, not Trump. On Brexit, income class were not predictors of vote. In fact, views of multiculturalism, of feminism, the death penalty was actually a greater predictor of people's views on Brexit well, let me clarify, than their economic status. Let me clarify a couple of things. So first of all, um, uh, you know, the, a lot of what you've just said, certainly culture, issues around immigration, which have been basically uh, uh, sort of put forward as a main argument for Brexit and for, uh, uh, for the, the rise of Trump and populism more generally across Europe, um, to me are masking a more fundamental problem, which still has its roots in economics. If people feel that their lives are improving, that the future generations 
generations' lives are improving, I would argue that we would see much more stability. We have seen much more stability in those periods. I get that, but then Donald Trump also won Hold more on, votes I'm... from rich people than he did Hold from poor on. people. Hold on. He won the majority I'll give you, of college-educated white people. It wasn't just I'll give about you, I'll give you a stagnating wages. I'll give you a statistic that illustrates the story. As you are aware, the, uh, the, the sort of general high-level numbers that Hillary won the popular vote by 3 million. If you take out the New York, I'm not talking about the state, just the metropolitan city of New York, and if you take out the metropolitan city of Los Angeles, not California, just yeah. Los Angeles, Donald Trump won the, the vote by over 3 million votes. That is how split this country is. People in New York City and in Los Angeles are essentially very liberal, uh, tend to be much more, more wealthy, and tend to be deriving their welfare and, and in terms of their living standards yeah, from a global society. Fine. And um, unlike you, perhaps, uh, I you know, take the view there's no point in me making arguments that I have no basis in fact or knowledge to, okay. to make. You seem to treat growth as uh, some sort of magic bullet. And yet, if you look at some of the biggest problems facing the world today, problems you recognise in the book, income inequality, uh, climate change, more and more economic growth has not only failed to solve those problems, many would argue, experts would say, it is in fact a driver of those very same problems. Would you accept that? I would not. Um, and I would not accept it because I think one of the key points that people tend to miss is not that we have not gained from a model where we have depended on, on growth. We have failed to redistribute that growth in a way that actually enhances the lives of many people around the world. Um, if I think specifically of some of the examples of this, uh, there are many policies today that ha are, have short-term gains, um, particularly in Western societies, but have very deep long-term problematic consequences. Um, trend, uh, I'll give you one example, trade protectionism. The fact that the United States through farm subsidies and Europe through the uh, common agriculture policy have locked out the goods that are produced in places like Africa and South America have essentially created an environment where we have not only created more, more impoverished people, but we've also created or fed into issues of political instability. I'm saying deal with the real world, not your aspiration, noble aspiration, which is Oxfam. more growth. Look at the Oxfam reports. Every January, they're putting out reports and saying the world is growing. We know that, I think the estimate for this year is that the eight wealthiest people in yeah. the world have more so, wealth than the bottom 50% okay, so of the world. So we're in agreement then. And so, more so, growth doesn't cut inequality. In fact, it increases. I was very clear. I said that the point is not about growth. The fact is that how we redistribute mm. that growth. And on climate change, you talk about the edge of chaos. Uh, but what about climate chaos? Isn't it irresponsible to talk about growth, 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 given experts like Kevin Anderson at the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research have said that continuing with economic growth over the coming two decades is incompatible with meeting our international obligations on climate change? Well, there's a whole literature, which obviously you haven't cited or perhaps you've not seen, um, which is focused uh, specifically on what we call green growth. Um, there's massive discussion around this. And in fact, you talked about China earlier. China is quite a, a lead ahead in terms of trying to in ensure that we... Of course they are. Have you been there recently? Uh, the they are, Beijing has more solar panels than most of and the yet, other countries around the world. The, the, they are... I mean, I could go and yet on the and UN's on. Environmental Protection Index, made formulated by Yale University, puts China at 120 out of 180 countries in the world. Listen, China is the second largest economy in GDP terms. It's ranked near number 100 in per capita income terms. This is one of the poorest countries on that metric. The notion that somehow they should wake up um, and have an economy that's functioning at the highest levels is 
is absurd. The United States, even in the last 20 years, they've had cities where there's been mass pollution. Um, just Flint, Michigan, is not 20 years ago, where they've got polluted water. Um, the notion that you're putting all this pressure on China, which is still a nascent economy in many respects, um, to me is foolhardy. I'm not putting um, pressure. You cited China. Well, you're the, you're you cited green growth. First. I'm just well, you're talking about green growth. <laughs> it's not in your book. You don't advocate for green growth. I in the sure book. do. Climate I change. sure do. How many times has climate have change been in your book? Yes, how many have you read my book? Yes, have you read my book? No, seriously. Okay, let's ask you a question. I'm, okay. I'm a bit worried. Okay, you may have just read okay, some reviews. Well, let's have a test. Let's have a test on your book. How many times do you mention climate change? There's a whole section. I've mentioned it multiple times. You mentioned four times. The words climate change appear in this 200 multiple page four times. What pages? I'll do absolutely love to I can give you the page numbers. It's only four. I'd love to So all I'm saying is it's great. Please do check. Go home, buy the book. Tell me now, tell me now, though. Yes. What is your position on growth and climate change? Summarise it for us in a sentence. Well, I, as I said, I think the, the framing is around green growth. We have 90% of the world's population that lives in the emerging markets. 90%. Okay. Those people, um, including myself who comes from Africa, have been assured, have been encouraged that we can live like Americans, live like British people. You, if you decide you want to go and put the genie back in the bottle, good luck. Okay. I do want to go to the panel on this, but yes. just before I do, one, one last question. I must ask this to you. Uh, you were working at Goldman Sachs back mm -hmm. in 2008. Yeah, when, for 10 uh, years, actually, I worked there. Yeah, and, 10 years. But you were there in 2008, the, you know, at the time of the financial crash, that Goldman Sachs helped cause, which killed growth. Many might argue that, are you really the right person to be writing a book about growth, given the association with Goldman Sachs? I don't understand the connection. The question is, if you work at an institution, you're part of an institution mm -hmm. that did so much damage to the global economy, and then you come around and say, these are the solutions for growth, the biggest hit to growth came from the banks and from Goldman Sachs. You know what, um, I, you know, I, what, you, what you're exhibiting is a pure lack of understanding in how the global economy works. Um, so let me just... So uh, Goldman Sachs let didn't me, pay a $5 billion me, fine and say we were responsible Let for me this. elucidate okay. for you. Okay. Many governments, not just this not government in this country, but also governments in the United States is a good example of this, um, they have a clear and stated policy um, of called housing for all. This is a policy where they deliberately encourage yes. everybody to own a house. It doesn't matter what your income is and your ability so to pay. So this is the argument Just that the government was to blame? I'm not saying the government was to blame. We're all to blame because we essentially... We, Goldman many, Sachs many have of a special role to play? I, I think to it's a very simple question. Does Goldman Sachs have a special role to play? They paid a $5 billion fine and said we accept our role. Many institutions prices. pay fines. I'm trying to help you become a bit more educated in this okay. field. Because... You, can, you can keep <laughs> insulting me. I'm just asking I'm, you a very I'm, simple I'm not, question. I'm not. I'm just saying that we all have to take a responsibility. I know you want me to give you a one-liner. Yeah, I want a yes or no. Does gonna, Goldman Sachs have a special gonna, responsibility? Not, no, there's no special responsibility. Got okay, it. Okay, no. let's go to the panel. Uh, we have an excellent panel here uh, <laughs> waiting to join this very interesting discussion. I'm joined by uh, Anne Pettifor, who's the author of The Production of Money, one of a handful of economists, uh, as the newspapers often remind us, to correctly predict the financial crisis. Uh, Anne, what do you, uh, when you hear the arguments about the importance of growth, as, as, as presented by Dan Beza, both here and in the book, what's your yeah. response? <clears throat> Dambisa, you said governments should be making, formulating public policy. Policy requires boundaries. Capital hates boundaries. Goldman Sachs hates boundaries. It wants to go where it wants to go and where it can make the biggest profits. And you're advocating, essentially, a globalised economy where boundaries won't matter, where governments won't matter, where public policy will not have an effect because markets will decide. And I find that, that, that there's a really deep hypocrisy in that. You're, trying, you're on the one hand trying to blame governments, on the other hand you are mostly in favour of markets making the most important decisions that affect millions of people across the world. Do you want to respond? 
Yes, I'd love to respond. So what is absolutely clear is that I am a supporter of, of uh, this idea of globalization, the movement of trade and goods and services, movement of capital, but also the movement of people um, as an immigrant. However, however, we know that what is defined and explained in textbooks does not actually happen in real life because public policy and imperatives and trade-offs and real politique, the fact that especially democratic governments want to win elections, means that these things do not apply in real life. Jamie White's with us, who's uh, Director of Research at the Institute of Economic Affairs, the IEA. He's also a former New Zealand politician and philosophy lecturer. Uh, Dave, David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough, one of Britain's great naturalists, uh, says, anyone who thinks you can have infinite growth in a finite environment is either a madman or an economist. Do you agree <laughs> with him? Um, well, infinite, of course not. Uh, you can't have it. But I, I really couldn't agree more with him. So the, the era of globalisation, imperfect as it's been, has seen... Billions of people lifted from poverty. It's really been the most astonishing uh, period of success in human history. In 1980, 40% of the world's population lived on today's money, $2 a day or less. Today, it's about 8%, I think, and it's coming down, down, down. That is a fantastic achievement, which we should be celebrating. And all these funny little... I mean, I find it astonishing that people are hostile towards the processes that have brought about what is close to a miracle. Okay, let me bring in, let me just bring in Jason Hickel's waiting very patiently there, anthropologist at the London School of Economics, uh, author of The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions. Uh, Jason, I'm interested in the, in the climate argument because Dan Beamler very forcefully rejected the idea that there is a clash there, you can focus on green growth. Uh, what do you think about that? So it's interesting because the only reports that were published by international institutions on green growth were done in 2012 for the UN summit uh, on sustainability. What's interesting is that uh, they did not cite any substantial models to justify this idea that rich economies uh, can manage to grow while at the same time massively reducing material consumption and emissions down to uh, the carbon budget for two degrees Celsius. Since then, fortunately, there have been a number of key studies, which I write a lot about, and literally every single one of the models that has been developed shows that, uh, that green growth is not a thing. It's literally physically impossible to have exponential growth at the same time as reducing material consumptions and reducing emissions fast enough to stay within the two degrees Celsius carbon budget. And, okay. And to me, it's, it's fundamentally irresponsible to have a book out there promoting endless growth in rich nations where it's not necessary in the face of all the research we have about planetary boundaries. So okay. who, who, has, who has promoted the, uh, endless growth in, in developed countries? That's not my book. I don't know whose book that is. But it's, just to be it's, absolutely it's very, clear, it's very that clear. is not mine. Sorry, it's very clear in your book that you're... It, makes, it would be absurd. No, sorry, it's I mean, very I'm, clear I'm, in your book that you're talking about the United States... Uh, you're talking about you know, nations like the UK, you're talking about Brexit, you're talking about Trump, you're trying to say these people are upset because there's not enough growth. You're, you're trying to say no, what no, we need no, is no, more no, growth no. in these and countries. And thank God I'm here, because and if I were dead, you'd be saying these things, I wouldn't necessary. be here to defend myself. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm here. That's so, why we invited you. And I, I don't worry about the United States growing at 3%. I worry about emerging countries, and I talk about this very explicitly, about emerging countries growing below 7%. You need to grow at least 7% to double per capita incomes in one generation. I'm desperately worried when South Africa, Russia, Brazil are growing at 1-2%. Okay. I am worried that India is growing 4-5%. Okay. But you also are worried about the, America and the UK, otherwise why talk only, about Trump only, and only to the extent that public policy but, is, is so derived... Global We've got to move on the show. We're going to run fine. out of time. Let's talk about okay. public policy. Okay. But the most provocative chapter of your book that's got the most attention of the reviewers and people who've read it so far is the chapter 7, which is called Blueprint for a New Democracy. Yes. In it, you talk about various proposals for ten reform. Of, ten uh, proposals. And you, you, quote, you say, quote, radical reform of democracy is needed to save it from decay. Yes. 
One of your most contentious proposals is to have voters in the West pass a test, a knowledge test, a civics test, in order to gain the right to vote. Surely you must see how tests of that kind uh, could be deployed, probably would be deployed, to disenfranchise uh, the poor, those with less access to education, minority communities. Absolutely. And I talk about that. I mean, obviously, I am black. Obviously, I'm a woman. And obviously, I'm from Africa. If I were to purport and to support types of uh, regimes or systems that actually do not allow people to vote um, based on a whole list of, uh, of adjectives, race, gender, wealth, um, land ownership, I'd be the first person that'd be disenfranchised. So it'd be crazy. And I, I've been accused of being crazy. I'm not that crazy to suggest <laughs> that I should not be allowed to vote. You and just to, be, just to be clear... Yeah. Um, as immigrants, and I'm sure there are many immigrants in this room, they will tell you, if you want to be a citizen in this country, you want to be a citizen in the United States, you have to pass a test. It is already the case. So I don't know if people aren't aware of this. Not for people who are born And it doesn't matter. It doesn't well, it matter. Well, hold a second. Let me finish rights. my argument. I yeah. said okay. it doesn't matter what your income or your origin or your race or gender is when you're an immigrant that shows up in these countries. You have to take a test. Okay. All I'm suggesting is the test is designed to, to reward people for engagement. You mentioned reward. Many people People would say voting is a right, not a reward. Well, people and, aren't using it. And second, and so, a lot are. And second, forty-two percent participation rates doesn't mean a lot. 42%. Are forty-two percent? Where, where's forty-two percent? Oh, across average, average across Europe. Okay. Um, the United States, fifty percent, thirty percent of people who are low income. We okay. do not want that so, situation. So the idea is then you make it harder for them to vote by putting no, a no, test you, in front of on, them. Hold on, hold on. That's a weird that's, way of getting. Well, you, that, you don't understand the book. Once again, I I'm don't desperately the concerned book. Okay. because the argument was very Maybe clear. Maybe I'll fail your test then as well. But yeah, you probably would. And then I won't be able to do it. The, I mean, just, just deal with the discrimination point. You say you're a black woman from Africa, yes. so then why propose a test when in the US Deep South, literacy tests were explicitly used to disenfranchise black voters? Because, once again, you're, 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 you're not appreciating what I'm trying to do, which, of which there are two, two uh, goals. Number one, we want to increase participation rate. We want to ensure that the ideal of one man, one vote, which is essentially the mantra that everybody's been told for many years about liberal democracy, we want that to hold. Yeah. As many people must vote. But we also want to make sure that the people who are voting have some good knowledge of what exactly we're voting on. Um, the, the day after Brexit, and I'm sure many people know this, um, apparently the most Googled term is, was, uh, what is Brexit or what is EU? It's a bit of an well, urban legend. It, well, it may be. It's it may be. But it, you know what? In, in a world of fake news, even urban legends become fact. And I think that whatever the case... What? Well, in a world of fake news, what was that? I Urban mean, legends become facts. Just to fact. be clear, so by fact, I don't mean they become true. What I mean is that it goes around, as you said, urban legend. Yeah. People start to quote it, like myself, and it was very clear. I said, Why quote I said, that's apparently. Untrue? I don't know it to be untrue. Do you know it to be untrue with certainty? Well, yes, oh, actually. Oh, you do? Google did a study, oh, okay. and a 1,000 people all only right. asked I don't Google. Know about that. If you're going to extrapolate from 1,000 people to all of the people who Maybe. voted... Okay, let's, so all let's of the people not, who voted for Brexit let's were just, thick, is that what I, you're trying to say? Well, I don't understand what the point of that thing. question is. The point of the matter is, I was trying to explain to you that the book is designed to target two things. Yes, Participation rates and to ensure that we have a knowledge... Of got it. So let's deal with a more controversial proposal. You say that not just people should pass a test, but people who are more qualified or more knowledgeable should have more votes or more influence. You say, quote, three tiers of voters, the unqualified, the standard qualified voter, and the highly qualified voter. Mm -hmm. In a world of Brexit and Trump and populism and the far right, do you really <laughs> think giving some people more votes than others based on their education will stop populism or help populism? Okay, so um, let me take a step back and explain exactly what this Chapter 7 is doing. Chapter 7 offers 10 proposals. Um, these proposals are not supposed to be 
taken in wholesale because countries have different levels of democracy, but also very importantly, they all have some precedent somewhere in the, in the world. So you're picking on a, a specific point around this question of ranking voters. That already exists. Already in the United States, in the Democratic Party, superdelegates have a bigger weight. In Switzerland, there is a massive movement by, by the young um, parliament there to actually increase the uh, participation. In fact, the weights of young people's vote between 18 and 40, so that's double the weights of people over 60. You don't think people will go crazy if certain people get more power, more votes than them based on their educational qualifications? You're not Nor listening. do you think that will increase You're inequality? You're not listening. I, nobody said anything about education. Once What's again, the test, I, the test is the based colors. on participation, not on education. You're taking sentences out that have a broader context. Let me just read to you in context, page 201. Waiting could also be tied to one's professional qualifications, such as certification as a doctor, teacher, lawyer, employment status, level of educational attainment, on the assumption that excelling in these domains makes one more likely to make well-informed choices in the voting. And once again, I'm saying Do to you... Do you stand by that? I, I'm, I'm explaining. If you actually read the paragraph before that, you'll see that I was essentially saying, here is how the argument goes. The argument would okay. be that you could have votes based on education. And if you read the part after okay. that paragraph, I quickly dispel that... Okay. Okay, let's go to our panel. And you were eager to come in there. Well, I wanted to, to just remind Mbisa why we had the French Revolution and why Thomas Paine wrote his book, <laughs> The Rights of Man, and why Mary Wollstonecroft wrote uh, The Vindication of the Rights of Women. But I think I found the book disappointing in that it was shallow. Um, it's true that participation rates have fallen, but I think the question to be asked is why have participation rates fallen? And that's not asked in the book. Instead, you're trying to tell, patronise the public, tell them that they haven't got it right and they need to be tested and trained in order to vote. Instead of asking why they're not participating, and they're not participating because they find that markets, invisible, um, unaccountable, remote markets are making decisions that affect their livelihoods. Jamie's shaking his head That's next why to they... Jamie, I, actually, I don't want to be diverted by this funny idea that markets make decisions, only people make decisions. <laughs> I think that there is a problem with voter ignorance, since each vote has very little influence on the outcome of the election. It's not worth investing a lot of time and effort to, to get the, the knowledge you would need to be an informed voter. And I think it's very interesting there are lots of people who come up with ideas about how to deal with this. I'm not actually all that keen on your specific ones, not all of them, but I think it's a really worthy area of inquiry. Yeah. And we don't want this kind of hysterical reaction to any proposal that it's undemocratic or... You know, in, all democratic systems have undemocratic elements in them, otherwise they wouldn't function at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've got way too much democracy now in the sense that far too many decisions are collectivised. And, and, they're, and they're made by people who are ill-informed. And it's wonderful to see somebody trying to, to engage with these issues. I, we're not going to answer it tonight, okay. obviously. Jason, we have too much democracy, <clears throat> Jamie says. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I actually think that you've done yourself a, a disservice, Tambisa, because you, you, your last chapter is full of these interesting proposals about gerrymandering, about media regulation, et cetera, et cetera. But then you give this kind of absurd proposal about, vote, uh, about weighted voting, which overshadows all of that, and no one's talking about any of your actual good reforms. So I think you should probably renounce the position and then talk about the other uh, bits you're, oh you have in mind. Who has but, never heard about gerrymandering and campaign finance? I mean, but, I wanted to be but innovative but the point, and but the not point I want to make here, the, the crucial point I want to make here is I think that the, the, the biggest issues about democracy you actually failed to address at all, and that is this. If we're talking about the global economy, we have to look at the institutions that are governing global economic policy, like the World Bank and the IMF, 
which, uh, where voting power is monopolized by the US and a handful of rich nations, where the global south, which has 85% of the world's population, has less than 50% of the vote on crucial uh, decisions on macroeconomic policy that affect them. I've written extensively about this. My book, Dead Aid, was specifically targeting international institutions and the fact that the, the, the policy-making decisions were centralized at a particular, in a particular place where, and very much removed from, from um, okay. recipient countries. You say in the book, you're very critical of professional politicians, as are many people. And you talk about how to raise the standard of people in public office, that they should have experience outside of politics, have real-world jobs. Uh, how do you feel about the President of the United States? Did electing a CEO billionaire make America more stable, less corrupt, in your view? So, um, I don't necessarily like the way the president uh, talks about women. In fact, I don't like the way he talks about women at, at all. I don't like a whole host of other things. But all I will say is the American economy is functioning. Okay. They're getting stock market highs all the time. Their unemployment rate, not just for the average of the society, but also for minority groups, is at all-time lows. Um, there, there, there are some big concerns that they're dealing with, but we all have to accept that Americans have made enormous sacrifices, and unfortunately, until European Governments start to take more responsibility for what they have to pay, and more generally, we start to feel a bit, bit sympathetic for what has happened to that economy and that country. I think we're being a bit too simplistic. Okay, on that note, we're going to have to take a pause. Uh, join us for part two of a very lively discussion here with Dan Bizamoy on Head to Head. We're going to be talking about China, democracy, development, and we're going to hear from our very patient audience here in the Oxford Union after the break. Welcome back to Head to Head on Al Jazeera English. I'm here in the Oxford Union with Dambiza Moyo, best-selling author, economist. She's got a new book out, The Edge of Chaos. Um, Dambiza, what I didn't get reading your book is that you heap praise on liberal democracy, on capitalism. You say you want to save it from some of the problems that it undoubtedly faces, market. But then you also are full of praise on China, and you talk about how, quote, economic growth is a prerequisite for democracy, not the other way around. So is democracy, I'm wondering, something you think that gets in the way of growth and prosperity? So it's, it's a brilliant question that I've, I've talked about, and there's a lot of fantastic research out about this, because ultimately we want a democracy that functions and survives. Um, Shavorsky, which is, he was a professor in the United States, um, talks about this. He's got a model that predicts how long democracy will survive based on per capita incomes in, in a country. And his, his, his argument's very, which I subscribe to, is very basic, which is that if you don't have a middle class that actually is participating in the, in the uh, process that's voting, um, then you end up with, with a very narrow set of voters, and that is a, a system we don't want to support. We want to have a system uh, where the population is at a critical mass to hold the government accountable. And, and I've argued in previous work, my book, Dead Aid, for example, talked about the failure of democracy in Africa precisely because of this point. Our governments very rationally are able to pay attention to uh, foreign aid because they don't have to rely on a critical mass at home. And so there, I, there is, I believe, a, a very clear correlation. So I know you don't like... Simplistic yes or no questions. But are you saying then, just yes, to be clear, <laughs> that the, say, the Chinese model or the undemocratic authoritarian model is better for growth for the economy? than a liberal democratic model at this moment in our history? Okay, so once again, I do have to explain. Yep. Um, they're, they're essentially comparing apples and oranges, the proverbial apples and oranges. These are two very different ideological systems. Western ideology puts the individual as paramount. The most important entity is the individual. China's model is based on prioritizing society, the entity of society, as the most important entity. Um, the reason this, this is a, a critically important is that there are enormous social costs from a 
model where you have an individual as, uh, as paramount. Um, many of those costs we've kind of swept under, under the, the rug. Um, population growth. So the, uh, the idea that I can have as many children as I want, that's great. That's my freedom. That's my right. I'm not impinging on anybody's rights in theory. But in practice, we know issues of climate change, issues of, uh, of, uh, of, of green growth, um, the trade-offs around growth, but also in terms of health care, there are many ways in which this idea of I can do whatever I like actually does impinge on society's ability to grow and transform. The Chinese model is not, uh, at, at the end of the day, the only model and the best model because it also has its own costs. But it, this is the trade-off that we're, we're dealing with. And in the question, in, in terms the, of human rights abuses, it's a dictatorship. Well, China is also the largest uh, foreign lender to the United States, and okay. so for all our objections, um, perhaps okay, for, to human rights, I'm just saying. I get it. I'm just saying no, no, that we should not. Let's, let's be very careful. But if you're sitting in a Chinese re-education camp, very, the fact that they're money to America doesn't help you. Let's be very careful about how. First of all, we can go into history and talk about suffrage. 1971 was the first time that in Switzerland women had the right to vote. We can talk about the civil rights movement, which is only in the 1960s in the United States. So let's not all get hot and bothered about where China is. China is on a path. It does have to do a lot of work in its democratic process. It's already underway. Many democratic. It's underway. Most people say it's going the other direction. Well, Xi Jinping has made himself dictator first of for life. All, first of all, um, if you go to China and spend time there, which I have, um, they have democratic elections at the mayoral level. Um, there is innovation already happening in that political system. But I would just, just say. I would just say. Physician, physician, heal thyself. I think it's very, this is this is the problem I want to avoid because yeah. we're very good at spending time talking about countries that are blatantly non-democratic when actually this book and I think where the focus really needs to be and where the problems have come just in terms of the rise of populism and also the financial crisis, these are in the West. Let's solve the problems Earlier the on West. you were telling me your focus wasn't the West, it was the developing world. Yes, it is ultimately because public policy comes from the West. So you talk about you know, not giving the West a pass. Most of the guests on this show have actually, many of them have been from Western governments, I've held them to account. But when you say China is masterfully executing a carefully choreographed plan for growth, which is largely attributable to its political system, it does sound like you're endorsing that political system, which is a horrific dictatorship. I'm merely saying we cannot pretend that over 300 million people have been moved out of poverty in 30 years in China. The bottom line is that has been done and no other country in history or prehistory has ever been able to do what the Chinese have done. Um, I don't think we should spend a lot of time pointing fingers at China, you know, physician heal thyself. Well, physician, our economies and our, and our political system in the West. I get you're an economist. I said, I said our economies and our political economy. I said economies and, if you let me finish, economies and political environment are under Siege right now. They are voter participation. Where in the UK, in the US, in the West? Yes. Okay, but we don't have re-education. I'll give you. I'll give you we don't have a secret have, police. Well, I mean, have, things are bad. I'm, have, a, I'm a big critic let me of give you the democracy, list. but well, we're not on a Chinese don't, level. Don't of delude control. yourself. Voter participation rates are low. Number one. Number two. At least money, we can vote. Money, money has seeped into the political. I mean, this is a bizarre well, that's, argument. That's all. Well can you vote for Xi Jinping? That's all. Well, that's, that's can you vote all, for that's Xi Jinping? That's all well and good. Vote away then. Because I'm asking Money, money, money has seeped into the political process. Okay, 158 families. I agree with anything you're saying. I'm just I'm saying offering we're you a not perspective. China. I'm offering a perspective. Let's focus on our own democracies, where I we have that. populism. We have I real concerns. But, but then I also we read have, your book. We have we've got a Hungarian prime minister, Orbán, talking about exactly, authoritarianism. Exactly. We have so, Russia, so which how, is producing 40% of the energy into this country, I into this region. But this, this is classic uh, whataboutery. I'm asking it's you a simple not. question about something you wrote. You're a very influential woman. You're a best-selling author. The reason we invited you on this show, you have millions of followers on social media. When you say China's contemporary economic success is largely attributable to its political system, is that not, some might say, that's irresponsible because it sounds like you're saying that's the system you need for growth. That's so, a good system. Let that's me what explain what I think the virtues of that system are. 
That system is a long-term system. We have a fundamental schism between the long-term economic challenges and headwinds that the global economy is facing, led by developed countries, things like debt, et cetera, yep. um, productivity declines, versus the short-termism embedded in the electoral process. In the United States, they have elections every two years. This is incredibly disruptive, and it creates this mismatch between long-term economic challenges and short-termism in the political system. The Chinese model doesn't have to deal with that. They're not seduced by today's voter, or they don't need to seduce today's voter in order to remain in, office, in political office. Okay, let's go to our panel. Jason Hickel is an anthropologist at the London School of Economics. Uh, when you hear Dambi talk about China in that way, does that make sense, the long-termism? Yes, actually, I found this argument very frustrating. Uh, and the reason is because the book is basically about the value of, of, of uh, neoliberal free markets. And you say that we need, we need more of them, okay? But then you go into quite a lot of detail about how you, know, you admire China, you admire the New Deal in the US. It's exactly the opposite economic ideology. So, so where exactly do you fall on this? I mean, it's quite confusing and you're very slippery on that. So uh, I think it's pretty obvious because the new, what you described, the New Deal, Manhattan Institute, uh, uh, sort of Manhattan Project, uh, China, what do they have in common? They have the government playing an incredibly important role. Not the government, the government not seduced by short-term voters every two years or every um, electoral cycle. That is what but, they but have in common. Their the capital the allocation here. decisions are based on long-term thinking, long-term um, planning uh, issues which focus on future the, generations. The that's the, that's you, the basic thing. You've actually targeted the wrong enemy. It's not it's not democracy that's a problem because again the new deal happened in a democratic society it's not yes, democracy it's, not, yes, the, it it's not democracy that's a problem right okay. actually what's, what, the, what the problem is here is free market capitalism which is itself short termist and so the solutions are the solutions are accurate 10 very the, the clear deal. 10 very clear problems with democracy we don't unfortunately don't have the time for me to go through to them the notion that democracy is not a problem is mad it's crazy um, we're looking at across europe right now we've got masses of populism um, i'm sure my own Host here, my host here. Economic ideology you actually support. Oh and, my God! And, and okay, so first of all, okay. I'm, go, I'm, no, no, I'm sorry. Okay, I do, Jason, I, I do have Jason, to answer. Yeah, can I just? Because <laughs> yep. that is at the crux of the matter. He's just asked the question. I want to know what ideological model she supports. Yeah. I am not an ideologue. Let me be absolutely clear. I, Isn't that I what, no, no, no. Isn't it's that what very. Always say? No, no, no. <laughs> You're ideological. Well, I'm he, not. He rightly pointed out that I'm not ideological at all. The bottom line is that there are definitely benefits and merits from the capitalist Western system, there are also very clear benefits from China. Jamie, democracy is a problem, not a problem when it comes to economic growth. Where do you stand on that debate? Well, I, I want to first agree with the basic position that um, democracy isn't a required precursor for economic growth. And in fact, if you look at uh, the economic growth that occurred in the United States and Britain in the 19th century, which was basically founded on institutions such as private property and the rule of law and so on, those institutions got, came into place the British legal system prior to anything that we would today call democracy. And then democracy came later. So the basic uh, point, I think, holds. What's going on in China is indeed completely different. Uh, that, that isn't a, a rule of law, liberal democracy type system. But I think that the main point is to see that democracy is not a required precursor and indeed can get in the way for the kinds of reasons that Ndbiz is pointing out. That, that it, instead of uh, setting up the institutions required for a stable and developing economy, you get kind of politicians doing deals with the electorate in a certain sense over the short term in ways that are destructive. Okay. Um, but by the way, I want to say that I am an ideologue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anne. No, I, 
just want to say that the most popular president of all time was Roosevelt, and that was because employment was high, because people had jobs, people had decent incomes, and they had public services. And they loved that, and they participated, and they voted. What we have had since 1971 in liberalisation, neoliberalism, is that people have found themselves becoming disempowered because there are forces beyond their control, beyond the control of their governments. If parliaments are unfashionable, it's because parliaments don't make the decisions anymore. Where do you stand on China? Is that a political economic model worthy of It's emulation? very clear. It's authoritarian. It's socialist. It's communist. The people are educated. The people are housed. Unlike many governments in Africa, the people are cared for and uh, the market's managed. But then there's a lot of social unrest, which is repressed brutally by the government. I think it's uh, not very surprising that uh, we're looking very fondly back in the 1930s when actually the civil rights movement was just gaining momentum in the United States. Um, yeah, it's all well and good to remember those good old days, but guess what? People like me were not even allowed to vote at that time. You so, I mean, it might be, it might, it might already, and yeah, and, and, yeah, you said it, not I. So there are sig significant weaknesses in the democratic process. This is absolutely the case. I mean, the notion that we can sit here, take foreign direct investment from China, trade with China, have China lend our government enormous amount of money and then turn around and say, well, this is a big bad wolf and we don't want to actually deal with them, I think it's farcical. Okay. Let's go to our audience here in the Oxford Union. You want to raise your hands and wait for the microphone to come to you? Yes. Thanks very much. Uh, if I can go back to the question around weighted voting. Yes. So the South African, the post-apartheid South African Constitutional Court said that the vote of every and each and every citizen is a badge of dignity and of personhood. Quite literally, it says that everyone counts. Now, given that voting is not just an instrumental exercise, it's also an exercise in personal self-worth. Saying that some people can vote, others can vote and worth more, isn't that just fundamentally offensive? Well, you know, I, I have a sense of what you mean by offensive. I mean, I'm not really interested in emotional reactions. I'm more interested in something that's quite sustainable. This is about engagement. It's how it is that we expect citizens to engage in the process. I think that we need to explore everything. Um, I was very clear that I do not think that this type of weighted voting works in a general election. I consider myself pretty well-read, I'm pretty engaged, I'm quite interested in what's going on in the world, but I would not um, argue that I actually know what the best use or what the best decisions around um, a healthcare system should be. And I do believe that if I spoke to doctors, nurses, or people who work in the medical facilities, they'll be better able to tell me. Dambi, if doctors had been asked to vote in 1948, we wouldn't have a national health say. service. I know what you're going to say. We wouldn't have a national health I service understand. if we'd ask doctors I understand to choose whether they want to have a public health care system. <laughs> Lady there in the back, right there in the corner. Yes? You? Thank you. From your comments, um, it sounded like you make a, you're making a very broad distinction between governments and private companies and the free market. Is this distinction reasonable in that, for example, if we were to uh, limit protections that, that governments enforce, wouldn't private companies like Goldman Sachs operate like governments? So it is absolutely the case that we now live in a world where corporations, but not just corporations, wealthy individuals are taking a bigger responsibility and a bigger role in participation in public, what things that used to be the purview of only public affairs, public uh, governments. Uh, think about the Gates Foundation, think about many other foundations around the world that are delivering healthcare outcomes um, and outside of the electoral process, education, etc. So they, these lines are certainly becoming more and more blurred. Um, I personally think that we are moving more into the world that is requiring that, not not only because um, shareholders are demanding it, but other stakeholders and communities. They're saying, if you're going to set up an, a company in our backyard, we want you to help with the infrastructure, we want you to build schools, we want you to invest in healthcare. 
lady there in the red jacket. You've mentioned this quite a few times that you know debates and dialogues on Africa at the moment when they talk about political aid, business, politics, or glamour aid, as you so succinctly put it, um, different people are taking part, rich, the powerful, white, upper-class men are part of the conversation. So what do you suggest needs to happen for Africans to take back control of the dialogue, the conversation, um, and decide what happens in our countries? Well, one of the most interesting questions that I received when I was marketing dead aid was if, uh, if I were given a billion dollars, what would I do with it? Um, and my answer was I would invest it all in a PR organization because as far as I'm concerned, the aid movement has been tremendously successful for 60 years in convincing Africans that they're not worth being part having a seat around the table. They're not that smart, they're not that good, and they're always going to be a drag on the global economy. The narrative of Africa has, has been, in my lifetime, um, one of corruption, disease, war, and poverty. Over the past 10 years, there's been a significant shift with the arrival of China and many other countries, but the, and those countries do have their issues. But the notion that anyone would think that there's been a positive narrative around what the stories around Africa, okay. it's just foolhardy. Let's go back to the just gentleman hasn't. here in the front. Hi there. I work uh, on aid policy for Oxfam. We do believe that aid can contribute to addressing challenges like inequality and redistribution. Um, in the almost 10 years since your book, in regions like Africa, we've seen aid double, but tax revenues have quadrupled. Uh, deaths from diseases like malaria, HIV have halved. Um, and we've also seen poverty rates come down and aid has made a contribution. And we have seen democracy move forward in fits and starts. So the idea that, you know, you continue to hold those views and you would actually uh, firm them up even stronger is, is hard to understand. Can you explain? Yeah, for sure. Um, so two things. First of all, I don't know, entirely know what the Oxfam aid budget comes from, but many aid agencies that are all proliferated across Africa are heavily reliant on their governments, on Western governments. The corrosive nature of aid is around this question of, uh, of democracy on the African continent. We do want to be able to hold our governments accountable, but we can't do that if actually Oxfam is going to solve the healthcare problem, somebody else is going to solve education. How are we able to hold our governments accountable from a public policy uh, stance if they are not not the ones who are delivering these outcomes. We do need to move away. I was very clear that I didn't say we need to go to zero. I think there are some initiatives and there are some good things that I, I myself am involved in, some aid initiatives that I think are very good, they're very targeted. But even the aid programs to Europe after, the world, after World War II in the form of Marshall Plan were short, sharp, and targeted. They were not open-ended concessions that have been very corrosive to Africa, not just because of corruption, but because of inflation, the debt burden that okay. they've left on the continent. And I will just say one last thing. Um, you've given a whole list of positive things that have happened in the continent over the last decade. You're absolutely right. There have been significant wins. Um, but to the notion that those are because of aid, I think, is wrong. I mean, I think, we, as I said, we've had China come in. There's been significant investment from China. We're able to trade with the Chinese, for better or for worse. And I think that that is just one example. And many other governments are now going to the capital markets to raise capital. So I think aid is producing some help, but it's absolutely not the case that it is, uh, it's all because of, of the aid regime, which has been around for 60 years. Uh, I'm going to go to the gentleman at the back and then the lady who's been waiting. You talk about um, the very long-term view economic policy needs to take root in a country and the short-termism that democracy brings. But when we look at the example of uh, Rwanda and what Paul Kagame is doing, he is basically um, limiting civil rights um, for the benefit of growth. Now, in an African context, do you feel that uh, critical mass can be amassed within the middle, middle class to allow for um, a distributive power within the economy so that... Uh, uh, rights and progress and democracy can take root um, without having it hijacked by dictatorships and things like that. I, I wanted to get where you're coming from. Are you, are you someone who thinks it's a good thing what Kagame is doing on the growth front regardless of the political front or vice versa? I believe that what 
poor Grammy's doing is interesting. Um, okay. <laughs> you should be up here. You should be sitting in this chair. <laughs> I don't do it's, yes or no questions. <laughs> What do you think about Rwanda under Kagame and what's happened? Well, I'm not Rwandan. I don't live in Rwanda, so it would be kind of arrogant of me to sit here and start pointing fingers uh, at, at that economy. What I will say is that that country came from a genocide that the world turned their backs. We flew people out. Within 90 days, 10% um, of the population yep. was massacred, um, and we didn't really, we did nothing. The international community did nothing. And so, um, you know, I am sympathetic to the fact that they, they had a very difficult challenge. Everything was, was raised um, to the ground. Um, I think that they are showing improvements in many of the metrics that economists care about, um, things like doing business, um, the, the number of participation rate, they have 61% of women in, in parliament, um, more than anywhere else in the world. There are things that I can pick okay. and say that that is something for us to, to look at and emulate. Lady here in the black jacket, I said you'd come to you next. Can you get a microphone? One of the things you do suggest quite often is actually to make voting mandatory. And in Brazil, uh, it is mandatory, and in fact, more than 20% of the population does not go and vote and resents the fact that there is this policy. And you could not argue that Brazil, certainly in the last few years, has been a disengaged society in any shape or form. Don't you think that not voting is not only a reflection of how the society feels about their, their elites and their representatives, but also ultimately part and parcel of the right to vote is the right not to vote? Well, I actually believe in, in the civic right. People died um, for the right to vote. And so I really, I, I would, I, I talk about mandatory voting because I think it's something we should explore and I think it, it really is interesting. Um, I, and, you know, as you know, there are 27 countries around the world that have mandatory voting from Australia, uh, Belgium, Greece, um, many countries in South America. Uh, do I think that that uh, people, uh, the only reason people don't vote is because they're trying to send a message to the political class and the elite? No. I think there are a lot of economic uh, um, arguments. There are a lot of people... In the United States, as you know, the, the, the presidential election every four years is on a Tuesday. Um, there are a lot of people who are on minimum wage who would like to vote, who are not able to go to vote because it takes too long and there's a, there's a process. Um, I'm gonna go, we're running out of time. I wanna go to a woman at the back. Um, I was wondering about the importance of voters being informed as well as misinformed. What do you think is the balance of responsibilities between voters informing themselves and educating themselves and the government preventing misinformation and campaign finance reform that will get more accurate information out to the voters? What is the balance of responsibilities, or okay. are they equal? Yeah, I think that's a great question, particularly in a world where we have fake news, we have uh, social media as a different conduit. Um, and so one of the things that I've been looking at and I've written about is whether or not we, we need some kind of Glass-Steagall regulation. Um, that sort of, this is, refers to the banking sector where they separate retail consumer banking from investment banking. Do we need that kind of regulation in the media? So in other words, some clear delineation between fact versus fiction. Um, I think that's something that's on the agenda right now, and I would be very supportive of that. Um, traditionally, BBC Walter Cronkite in the United States, uh, it didn't matter what race or gender or, or what part of the political spectrum you were on, everybody yep. got the, was this one font of, of knowledge, basically one font of knowledge. That is a very different now where we are all sort of quite siloed. We get our information for where we, we, we places where we want to sort of reinforce our views. And so I do think um, if, if government and public okay. policy actually wants to survive, we do need to have much more diversity of thought. And, and okay. Gentlemen here. Yeah, um, Red Dead Aid, and find it challenging. Um, on one hand, it talks about kind of aid and that being a bad culture and that being making it difficult to kind of create change. And then on the other hand, talking about trade, and then you have kind of the market 
you know, supporting people and, and helping to kind of develop economies. I just wonder, are we swapping one kind of challenging institution for another? So um, in Dead Aid, I, I offered five proposals for alternatives as, for aid. Um, and again, just to be absolutely clear, nowhere in Dead Aid did I say we want to go to zero aid. Even in developed countries, there are uh, areas of society that are based on charitable outcomes, welfare of the welfare systems of the government, etc. So we don't have to go to zero aid, but we do need to think about things like uh, foreign direct investment, issues around um, tapping the capital markets. Um, this is just the, the suite of things that other countries that are very successful at it, developed and developing, uh, use. And so trade, you're right, it's under a lot of challenge and threat right now with the rise of protectionism um, emanating from the leading economies. But I, I do think that we, it's not just about one solution, it's about a whole host or portfolio of, of initiatives, and, and I offered them in, in the book as well. You, you, you keep saying you didn't say aid should go to zero. Yes. Well, Did, just before but didn't you famously, I mean, there was a lot of controversy around the, when it came out of the book. You said, what if one by one African countries each received a phone call telling them in exactly five years the aid taps would be shut off permanently? Yes. But I didn't is say that that's been... what they should do. I said, what if? What if is a question. It is okay. not a statement. Okay. <laughs> and one final question. Uh, Robert Kennedy famously said in 1968 that GDP, this measuring of economic growth, quote, does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages. It measures neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile. Do you agree with him? Well, um, yes, and, and to some degree, because Simon Kuznets, when he came up with the GDP uh, statistics, and he, he had a brilliant saying, he said, the truth of the matter is that uh, there are four categories of countries. They're underdeveloped, developed Japan and Argentina. Nobody knows why Japan grows and why Argentina doesn't, and I think that really is emblematic of the field of economics. We are learning, we're evolving, we're innovating, and a lot of what has been said here are, is food for thought, as things that people are trying to re-engineer and to improve on, and I would not suggest that we should throw out um, all the knowledge and all the impact that was mentioned earlier, the, all the benefits and the significant improvements that the world has seen. I mean, today, 71 years old is the global average for life expectancy. I mean, these are significant benefits that have occurred over the last uh, half, uh, half century, and I think we do need to actually recognize that there have been benefits from the system, um, and we do need to tweak and, and focus on improving the ones where there have been weaknesses. Dambiza Moya, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks to our audience here in the Oxford Union. Thanks to our panel of amazing experts. And thanks to Dambiza Moya for joining us on Head Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>